0: Let us hear then God's word. Titus 3, verse 9. But avoid foolish disputes, (coughs) genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Well, as we've seen, especially uh, in the last uh, couple sermons, Paul obviously is bringing his letter to a conclusion. Um, In verse 8, he emphasized this faithful saying in regard to the gospel and how it motivates us to good works. And you may recall I said this uh, very well could be considered the theme verse for the whole of the letter. And then last time in verse 9, Paul returns us to the theme of false teaching, and he uh, addresses this issue as he did in chapter 1. He gives us um, maybe a few new ideas here, but obviously all of it fits together. And as you may recall, he said some very similar things to Timothy in both 1 Timothy and in 2 Timothy. And simply, those who engage in these kinds of things, speculation about the law, Speculations about our past history and genealogies and, and other misuses of the scripture. <clears throat> in the end, all of it is useless and unprofitable. And so avoid people who do that. Not ignore them, but avoid engaging in those things. But Paul also says we cannot merely engage in doctrinal discord, uh, discourse, I should say. We cannot merely correct doctrine we must deal with those who hold to these false doctrines as well. We cannot only correct error in thinking. We must seek to correct the person who is teaching this error. And that's what we're going to address here, verses 10 and 11. Now, you may recall last time, uh, in particular, I, I gave a bit of an overview of this final section and you may recall there are six commands in verses 9 through 15. So again, uh, briefly, verse 9 is to avoid, now here to reject. And verse 12, be diligent. Verse 13, to send. Verse 14, let our people learn. And then verse 15, to greet. And the first four of these all place the command at the end of the clause. In English, of course, we can switch it around and so forth, but the, the command actually comes to the end. So in verse 9, foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, avoid. And now this one, a divisive man out of the first and second admonition, reject. Now, <clears throat> I think for uh, all of them, we can say Paul's emphasizing the point. Okay, So avoid it. Now reject him. And so he's stressing the point here. Um, But at least in this case, here in verse uh, 10, uh, there's more to it than just mere emphasis, as I'll show you here in a moment. Uh, Also, uh, all six of these commands are singular. Paul is speaking specifically to Titus, and then by extension to all uh, of us, and in particular leaders in the church. So let's start here then in verse 10, and start with this command, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. To reject here means to refuse, or uh, you could say decline. Maybe a better word of, of translation is to dismiss, or to drive out, or you could even say discharge. Okay. So the idea is, can you say get rid of them? Um And for for Paul to put it at the end of this is is very important because you have the first admonition, then the second admonition, then you reject, then you dismiss. And so the order here is significant in terms of how we proceed in, in an ecclesiastical kind of way for those in this situation. Now again, this is a command, a command to Titus and by extension a command to us today in our churches We must follow a similar pattern for those who are divisive. So let's now talk about that word. Uh, The first word in the clause actually is this word divisive, Um, a divisive man. It's the Greek word heretikos. So we bring that right into English, heretic. Now, when we think of a heretic, uh, we think of someone who specifically advocates for false teaching in the church and so forth, and, and they're a heretic. They're, they're not orthodox. And, and that meaning became very common in the second century. In the first century, it could have that meaning, uh, here as Paul is writing, but it also can have just simply a, a, a divisive kind of, of person, someone who's just creating discord. And it may emphasize false teaching. It may not necessarily, depending on the situation. Um, In light of verse 9, and in light of the end of chapter 1, it seems like the false teaching is forefront in Paul's mind here. But we can have divisive people who may be orthodox in a certain sense, but just, you know, they've got a big loud personality or, you know, something like that. and they can be divisive in other ways. Um, but uh, it, its I, I think you could say both here in Paul's mind. You can talk about a person who's just uh, very divisive in the way they relate to people. Or you could talk about someone who has false teaching. And, um, and, and so I'm not sure the term itself should limit us. But because of verse 9, it does seem like Paul is emphasizing the false teaching in particular. And so heretics divide God's people. They divide them with false ideas and with false practices. So we could say that they are factious, they are disruptive, they are sectarian. In the end, they're selfish. If you look back at chapter 1, and when he starts uh, this topic in verse 10, um, at the end of the verse, he says, especially those of the circumcision. So he's clearly saying that these people are divisive and what they're doing in the church and so on. Now, an important aspect here is simply this. We're not talking about a difference of opinion. Okay? We, even in the church, can have a variety of opinions on a variety of things. We might disagree on certain views of eschatology or certain views of, of particular uh, doctrines. There are other things, of course, we can't have a difference of opinion. Jesus is God. He died for our sins. You know, there's, there's no variation on that. Um, But in this case, we are referring to someone who is refusing to listen to the truth and is insisting on their own understanding. All right, so what do we do? Well, Paul says, first of all, admonish them. Warn them. This is the first step. Uh, The word here for admonish is, uh, can uh, we could translate it as corrective instruction. We're not merely talking about words. We're not merely talking about uh, saying a few words to set them straight. Uh, nor are we talking about a verbal spanking, as it were. Uh, these are efforts to correct. Okay? It's a, a corrective instruction. We're trying to help them to understand the truth. And so the first step with a divisive person, whether we're talking about doctrine or or, uh, just the way they behave or something, the first step is to instruct them. Again, don't go uh, waving your uh, spiritual rod the first step. Instruct them what the truth is. Help them to better understand, reason with them. And then Paul says that the second step is to do that again. Okay. There are two uh, efforts of instruction, of admonishing. If they refuse to change their views the first time, then do it again. Okay. Now, maybe we can assume Paul is implying that we should deal with it more force the second time, but he doesn't say that. Maybe we can say that's likely his point. But do you see Paul's patience here when it comes to dealing with those who are wrong. I I thought of these things as Eric was teaching in Sunday school uh, earlier uh, today. And it was a great discussion, Eric, by the way. (laughs) Didn't get to tell you that afterward, but that that was very good. Um, But it's... I I think Augustine is on to some very important ideas, and and this verse comes through in some of what he is saying, right? There's got to be some patience here, a just war and so on and so forth. We don't just immediately jump to the punitive. There are, um, if you will, patient steps along the way, but at some point you do need to reject. Um, Hold that thought here. (laughs) All right, now, Let me return to something I said here a moment ago. Since Paul is commanding Titus, um, this has more of a formal and official quality to it. I do think that we can apply these words in in kind of everyday ways, yes. Um, But Titus is the leader of the church. Remember, he is an apostolic delegate. He has been sent with Paul's authority. And so he is unique in that sense. We don't have apostolic delegates today. But the corresponding connection is, of course, the leaders of the church. And so um, we are to follow this pattern as well. And so this isn't really referring to casual conversations among believers, but leaders of the church dealing with those who are teaching aberrant things and even living in a divisive way. This is not merely a suggestion. It is a a formal admonition that the leaders of the church give toward those who are in error. And if they don't listen, in a sense, they're breaking the law. And so more formal things need to be done. There are consequences. There are punishments. Now, for Paul, again, the, the final punishment must be delayed. Admonish them, and then do it again, and then at that point, you go the next step. Well, <clears throat> you probably are thinking that this sounds similar to what Jesus taught, and so let's turn there. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 18. And there's no question that there are similarities between Jesus' words and Paul's words, but there are some differences, and so it has led to some questions. How do we put these passages together? Are they saying the same things? Are they different? Should, how do we fit them together? Okay. And so I'll bring some of that out as we go. And so in Matthew 18, let's start at verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. All right, now note this difference. Paul is talking about a divisive person, again, probably emphasizing uh, division in terms of doctrine. Uh, Jesus is speaking of sin in general here, and so it may be divisive in terms of false teaching. It may be, if you will, an everyday sin. Uh, Jesus is more general. Hey, okay, for brother, sins against you. Um, <clears throat> and so Jesus then tells us that the first step that we should take is private conversation not admonishment. You see the difference here. Jesus is saying private conversation. Go talk to that person who sinned against you. Now, Jesus obviously is assuming that the sin is legitimate. It is real. Uh, maybe we could say for Paul, right, he's assuming that the divisive person is actually divisive. He's actually teaching things that are wrong. And so rebuke them for their sin, seek for repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation, Call on them to return to the truth. Now, sometimes when you do this, you actually find out that you were in the wrong, maybe because you misunderstood uh, in some way, maybe you didn't understand clearly what they were saying or doing or whatever. But um, I've I've heard this on a number of occasions, that those of us who actually obey Jesus' words here, about 90% of the time we do step one and that solves the problem. And I think that's probably a fair number. There are times, though, where we have to continue. Uh, but if we would just, instead of going home and griping about it to our family, if we'd actually go talk to the person, if, we, if we'd not just sit around the water cooler and gripe about people to, uh, to others, and we actually go talk to the person, a uh, uh, majority of the time we're going to solve the issue right there. Okay. But that doesn't always work. Um, and sometimes we have to do the next step. But usually the biggest problem is we don't obey Jesus' words. And we don't go talk to the person. <laughs> but Jesus says, "Do it personally, privately." And then he says, the second step. Verse 16. "If he will not hear take with you one or two more that the mouth of two or three witnesses may, um, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established." All right. The point that Jesus is making here is this. We are to take someone else who has witnessed the sin. We are not talking about taking someone along to witness the conversation. Now, you can do that, and many times that's a good idea. But that's not what Jesus is telling us here. He is telling us to take someone else who has witnessed the sin That needs to be addressed, right? That starts here in verse 15. And there are two reasons why we need to understand it in this way. First of all, notice here in verse 16 the little word that, right in the middle of the verse, just preceding the Old Testament quote, that. A better translation is in order that. Take with you two or three witnesses in order that you will obey and fulfill this Old Testament command. So that little word there is very significant in that way. And so we must apply the principle of the Old Testament quotation, Jesus says. So what is the Old Testament quotation? Well, let's turn then to Deuteronomy chapter 2, or excuse me, uh, chapter 17. Sorry, Deuteronomy 17. And I start with this one, although it has a very limited application. Uh, In Deuteronomy 17 and verse 6, it says, whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. This is very limited to a capital crime and issue, right? You cannot put someone to death based on what one person says. All right, now let's turn over to chapter 19. This is more broad. In chapter 19 and verse 15, it says, one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin, right? So not just capital things, uh, but any of these that he commits, By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. Uh, If we're going to pick, and there are actually a few other passages that that use this language, if we're going to pick one, it's probably this one that Jesus is actually quoting. It is closest uh, to the words in Matthew. But you see the point. You take two or three witnesses so the matter may be established. The reason why this is done is so that... um, Uh, Someone does not accuse someone else mistakenly. Uh, It helps to avoid lying and becoming a false witness. Uh, Note what he goes on to say, verse 16, "...if a false witness arises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord." before the priests and the judges who serve in those days. And the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. So you shall put away the evil from among you. And those who remain shall hear in fear and hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. And so uh, the broader context here has to do with witnesses, and the first application is verse 15, and then you have uh, these other verses. And so the matter must be established. Did it really happen, or did somebody make it up? Or did somebody say whatever they are saying here mistakenly? Okay. And so you cannot convict someone on one person's testimony. So <clears throat> say, for example, you go to Walmart, and uh, you steal a stickers bar or something, and shove it in your pocket. If one person sees you do it, hey, you can't be convicted of that. Now, if the camera shows you doing it, well, there's a second witness um, and, and so forth. So uh, this is actually a principle that we have today in our culture. Our jurisprudence has this principle written into it. The language we use is innocent until proven guilty. But it's the exact idea given here, two or more witnesses. It has to be established before you can punish someone. And if you take Jesus' words in Matthew 18 to mean simply take someone to witness your interaction, well, how are you establishing the sin? If the person says, well, I didn't actually sin that way, you could take it all the way to to the church court and never have established the sin in the first place. Okay, but you need to do that. And the fact that Jesus puts this here at the second step is to limit us from getting carried away with our accusations. Okay, you need to establish it. Talk to them first of all, one-on-one. If it doesn't work, then, then establish it with that person. Yeah, you, you actually did this. It wasn't just me that saw this. You know, The other person saw it too. And hopefully then that'll get that person to come to their senses, okay? And so the idea of innocent until proven guilty is a biblical idea, and it comes from this. Now, let me also read verse 21 here in Deuteronomy just briefly to say, uh, Your eye shall not pity, life shall be for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Um, This is another principle of jurisprudence that is often misunderstood even among Christians. The point here is, to use our language today, the punishment should fit the crime. Um, there is no indication that the Jews actually thought they should apply this literally. They should go around knocking out people's teeth if they did it to someone else, but the punishment should be fitting to the crime that was committed. And so if you actually attack someone on the subway in New York City, there should be an appropriate punishment, not letting them go, for example. Um, and so another principle uh, for us today. Now that's somewhat of a side point. Uh, but do you see then uh, what Jesus is teaching? When someone has sinned against you, talk to them privately. And then if that doesn't work, you take someone else who is has witnessed to the sin And then you address that person. All right. Well, um, at some point, though, of course, we need to uh, go forward sometimes. And so coming back here to Matthew 18, uh, Jesus then gives us the third step. In verse 17, if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. Now, obviously, if you're in a congregational church, They have taken this to mean you just get up during Sunday morning announcements and you tell everyone about it. Uh, But we, not merely because we're Presbyterians, but we're Presbyterians for specific reasons, um, we don't believe that's what Jesus means. To tell it to the church means you tell it to the leaders of the church. And they then may decide whether or not it's announced publicly, uh, but we're to take it to the leadership. So you deal with it privately. If that doesn't work, right, take someone who's witnessed it. If that doesn't work, you then bring it to the leaders of the church. You cannot permit sin and false teaching to continue. So at some point, you, you may need to make it much more official, if you will, <clears throat> because the first step is clearly interpersonal. The second step may be more formal, but the third step clearly is formal. The elders are going to oversee the situation now. Well, let me maybe uh, try to uh, answer this question at this point. How, then, does Paul, Paul's words fit? Because Paul says to admonish first and then to do it again. How does that fit with the first two steps of Jesus? That doesn't seem to fit so well, does it? So I would be inclined to agree with those who say Paul's words actually fit with this third step and then beyond. Okay. And so, um, Paul is saying that when the matter is taken to the church, right, to Titus in this case, let's go through this process patiently. Let's not jump to conclusions. We don't um, necessarily assume that the first or second steps have been done uh, perfectly or well or whatever, As uh, leaders of the church, we often have to redo it to some degree or at least to ensure that the first two steps have been done properly. And so once we have determined that sin actually has been committed, once we've determined the person actually is divisive in either their behavior or their teaching, then let's admonish them. I think this is how we bring Paul's words in. The elders admonish first. Instruct them, teach them. If they don't listen, do it again. And at that point, if they still refuse to listen, then we move forward to reject. Paul here seems to be highlighting patience, even with divisive people. And so, again, there's debate on how to put all this together, but I think this makes the most sense to fit Paul's words of Uh, Titus 3, into this third point that Jesus makes in Matthew 18, verse 17. And so, assuming that that's the right understanding, uh, Paul is then saying, once we arrive at this point, and we've admonished on two occasions, then rejection is necessary. And so, Jesus says, then uh, following verse, that first part of verse 17, if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you as a heathen and a tax collector. And Paul says, reject, dismiss the person. And so Paul's words, and, and I think we can assume some of that from what Jesus says, but Paul's words makes it maybe a bit more clear. Let's not be overzealous in handling uh, those who have sinned even those uh, who are divisive in their teaching. Instruct them, warn them, be patient with them. But if they persist, yes, we need to put our foot down. The final step is to drive out. And, of course, the term we use today is excommunication. No longer treat that person as a professing believer. No longer treat them as a brother and sister in Christ. Treat them as a heathen, Jesus says. Treat them as a tax collector. And if we come back here now to Titus 3, notice how Paul words it in verse 11. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. And so this is Paul's way of saying they're a heathen and a tax collector. They're warped. They're perverted. They're not straight. They've turned aside from the truth. Uh, we could even say that they are stubborn. They... Um, are corrupted in this way. Simply, it's not just a wrong understanding. If they had a wrong understanding and they were wanting to do what was right, the admonition would take care of that, right? But the fact that they are persisting in their false views and false practices means they are morally corrupted. There's a moral problem here. And this persistence okay, proves their guilt. They are self-condemned. It becomes obvious to everyone. The term that we use is contumacy. They're contumacious. They refuse to listen. Now, there's certainly a lot more to say here. We could talk about practical examples and so on and so forth. We could talk about the right to appeal. Because there are situations where these steps are followed, the church gets involved and they admonish and warn, but they've done it all wrongly for one reason or another. Okay? Uh, maybe the, the, the person in leadership uh, has a, a, um, some personal problem with the other person involved and, and it's not done rightly. So there is a right to appeal. But that said, here then is um, some principles for how to uh, undergo church discipline and how I think Jesus' words and Paul's words fit together. Now what is the goal of church discipline? You often hear people say church discipline never works. Why bother? Hey, it just drives people out of the church and makes them angry and yada yada yada. <clears throat> well, that's often the case, yes. But um, The ends do not justify the means. And so the means have been given to us. We must follow these things. And the goal, one of the goals for us is to honor God in the end. God tells us to do these things, and so we must honor him. Whether we want to or not, whether it's easy or not, we need to follow through with these things. Another goal is then to keep the church pure. If we allow sin to continue, if we allow false teaching to continue, this will corrupt the church. And it will lead to division. Right? Heretics, false teaching leads to division. Sin often leads to division, even more general kinds of sin. And so our goal here is excuse me, to maintain church purity and church peace. Again, if you just let sin continue, where's the peace? Where's the purity? And so church discipline is necessary uh, for these reasons. We also have the goal of restoring the sinner. And I think that is plain in what Jesus says. Right? We don't jump to uh, treating him as a heathen, though we often do that. Somebody sinned against us, oh, they're non-Christian. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But no, let's work through the process. And even this third step of the church, Paul is saying, and hey, be patient, admonish a couple of times before you get to the end. Hey, the goal here is to restore the sinner. And even if you get to the point of excommunication, it isn't simply for punitive reasons. The goal here is to restore them. Hopefully, once they are rejected, they will come to their senses. If, if not sooner, hopefully. Uh, but the goal. Is is such. And so therefore it is a last resort for us to excommunicate. Don't do it too soon. But maybe more commonly in our churches today, don't ignore sin and don't ignore false teaching. It must be dealt with. Let's turn to a few passages here briefly, let's turn to first Romans chapter 16. <clears throat> Romans 16, verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. You see how Paul is saying we need to engage with this, to protect the church. Right? To protect those who aren't able to be as discerning for one reason or another. All right, then let's turn to uh first Timothy chapter one. First <clears throat> Timothy and uh, chapter one, the end of the chapter, verse 18. <clears throat> First Timothy one eighteen. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And so Paul here is making reference to two people and their division, whatever exactly it was here okay, and how he rejected them he treated them as heathens but the goal here is that they would learn not to blaspheme okay, so paul again he's not being vindictive or anything but the goal is to to uh, restore them to the lord ultimately and then if you'd look at 2 Timothy chapter 2 here's another example in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and uh, verse 16 Second Timothy two sixteen, but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus, there he is again, and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. Clearly, Paul in this case is referring to divisive people in regard to their doctrine. And so again, deal with this. Shun them, he says, but not in the sense of ignore them. Shun them, reject them, stand against them, and hold up the truth. Well, there's certainly some other passages we could look at, but here are a few. Um, When it comes to church discipline, we here at the church, since I've been here, have had to deal with some of these things. Um, They have been, uh, if you will, sins in general, and not so much false teaching. Um, But nevertheless, we've had to work through these things. Um, We have, though, made decisions to try to prevent false teaching. There are some people we have not permitted to teach. There are some people we do not ask to preach when I'm away. And... uh, that's a different way of approaching the situation <laughs> but we're trying to prevent the problems in the first place right and so that's how we've dealt with it at least since I've been here um, but this is also why we engage with false teaching and uh, because it, if we don't understand what it is then it's going to lead us astray and so we looked at that last time in verse 9 I've done it in different ways over the years whether it's federal vision discussion we had a number of years ago or as I've talked about the gospel centered approach to things or now some of the woke teachings and so forth we we need to address these things so that we don't have to go through church discipline or if we do we're more uh, prepared to 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 handle it Um, as always there's so many things to address um, but here are a few thoughts on Paul's words and uh Uh, May we never need to use them, but we're a bunch of sinners, so we probably do at some point. So let's pray together. All right, Lord, we are so thankful again for your word, and uh, we are thankful that though we are sinners, and though, as we've seen in Romans, you often pour out wrath upon us, um, we are thankful, though, that you do this for your people for our benefit, for our good, to restore us to yourself. And you've also given us these patterns, these instructions to deal with sin, whether it's moral behaviors or false teaching. And you've not left us to figure it out for ourselves or to flounder around or whatever. Uh, but you've given us these instructions for our good and for the purity and peace of the church, for your honor and glory for, uh, for these things. And, and so, Lord, we thank you for this. Uh, we thank you for the peace that it does provide when we do have to um, follow through on these things. But Lord, we, give, uh, we ask that you would give us wisdom, and that you would give us um, understanding, that you'd give us patience, that you'd give us um, love and concern in the right ways uh, when we do have to deal with sin in these more formal ways. But even uh, on a personal level, um, thinking of Jesus' words, um, when someone sins against us, uh, help us to, to heed your command, uh, to, to um, uh, find restoration with our sinning brother or sister. And we wouldn't brood over it and talk about it, but deal with it appropriately. Um, Lord, we I just pray for your mercies in this way, for the good of your church, for the good of this church the good of our our lives and our relations with fellow believers and so on. And so, Lord, we again are thankful that you have given this to us and you've given us your spirit to strengthen us and and guide us in these things. And uh, in all things then, Lord, we pray that your name would be exalted and um, uh, that we would deal with sin in the right ways. Uh, We pray all these things then in Jesus' name. Amen.